Super tongue strikes again. Fastest tongue in the West. That was sick. I really don't think you should provoke somebody like that, Barb. Oh, listen, this guy's minor league in the city. I get two of those a day. Maybe. But you know, that town girl was raped a couple of weeks ago. Darling, you can't rape a townie. Welcome, everybody, to the Real Thrills Podcast. I'm here, Jay, with Eric. Eric, how are you? I got a cookie in my mouth, but I'm very good. Well, it's Christmas, so it all makes sense. Cookies are made, and we're here, and in that it's Christmas, I have a special guest here, Eric. Who who do we have here? You have your brother, your older brother, Joey. You know, and for all you listeners, if you've listened to any of these podcasts, this is the reason why I'm into this podcast. My brother over here, he got me into horror movies long, long ago. The font of all horror appreciation flows from me. Yes. Yes. I thank you for that, and so do our listeners. So I'm so happy that you're here. And we're going to be talking about a movie themed around Christmas. Eric chose Black Christmas, a 1974 original that has been remade a few times. We won't talk about that in this show. We're going to stick to the original in 1974, directed by Bob Clark. And Eric, who's Bob Clark? I don't know him personally, but um, what I found out from show research is that Bob Clark did another little Christmas movie. I don't know if it was as good, but um, you might know of it as the Chris- A Christmas Story. Ralphie. Ralphie. We got the uh, Bumpuses. What is that? <laughs> USA plays it 24-7 or 24-7? Hours I, of Christmas. Um, it it's one of those stations. one of those channels. Yeah, kept playing it back to back to back. <laughs> it's not my favorite movie, but I'll give him his flowers. I mean, yep, he did it. He did an amazing uh, Christmas story that was, you know, uh, more comedic. Also, he did Porky's, which is. Uh, have you ever seen that movie? Of course, I've seen Porky's. Have you seen that movie, Joey? Yeah, it's filthy. <laughs> it's. You could, you could never make. make that movie again, no. And and some of the lines in this movie really uh, has an influence from that uh, comedic. Um, I don't know what do you what do you want to call that? Just trash. Yeah, they called it slapstick back in the day in the eighties, or well, not just the eighties, but slapstick was like a way to talk about it. But really, yeah, it's like filthy, ridiculous, silly, lots of body humor. And we have some great quotes that came out of this movie. I'm sure we'll share with you all, you listeners. If you don't know the movie, go watch it. You can find it on, Joey saw it on Amazon. He paid for it. He rented it. I saw it on Peacock. I saw it on Tubi. Tubi. All, and it's on Pluto. So if you have a Fire Stick, go ahead and download it. It's free. It's got commercials in it, but you can get through it. Black Christmas, the original 1974. What else you got? How did it uh, do in the box office? So pretty low budget. I guess it's probably a lot of money in 1974, but uh, $620,000, but it made $4.1 million. So for a horror movie, which wasn't, I mean, it really grew a lot of popularity in the 70s. So we're talking early 70s. This is the same year the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. So 
I think uh, for it to be that successful for a really kind of early on or maybe one of the first uh, holiday-themed horror films is pretty impressive. No, 100%. And, and tickets were like a quarter, so that, it takes a lot of money to <laughs> to, to, to make $4 million. <laughs> to generate that revenue, for sure. It's uh, 98 Minutes, which is a very quick movie. I always like a pocket of a horror movie to be about an hour and a half. You can get in, get out, and get on your way. So 98 Minutes, perfect. It did come out, released October 11th, which I thought was kind of interesting, right, you know, during the Halloween-ish period. Um, but it was a Christmas-themed movie, so... Did people know what Halloween was before the the film came out? I don't think they did. No, Halloween was seventy eight, <laughs> right? Or no, the the actual holiday you're talking about, or the yeah, movie? no one knew what the holiday was, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, yeah. nobody knew about John Carpenter's nineteen seventy eight movie. That's for sure. <laughs> that's, yes. But as far as the holiday, I I, I don't know, man. <laughs> Probably, I wasn't around back then, Joey. <laughs> I was not around in 1974. <laughs> All right. Just uh, making sure. Yeah. In <laughs> 78, 78, I was there. I was there. This movie predates me. And so, some kind of big names in the film. Uh, maybe not big names, but names that went on to do some other horror films. So um, I will say, uh, I hope I'm not saying this wrong because I don't want it to sound offensive, but Olivia Hussey, is that right? <laughs> so I can tell you that when I was in seventh grade, they played us Romeo, Romeo and, Juliet. and Juliet. Yeah, and I remember my teacher was like, "Listen, there's a very big-breasted woman in this movie that you're going to see, and we need everyone just to calm the f down. All right, <laughs> just bear with it. I can't cover it. I'm good not going to edit it. Good old Pittsfield education, it. huh? And it changed my <laughs> life. You know, um, she uh, was a was a great Juliet. Um, I didn't love her in this film, if I'm being honest, but... Um, she was a little cold. Yes. She, her character was hard to access. Like, it's hard to get to know her or understand her. Her motivations were unclear at some parts. And what was with her phone, uh, her, like, phone um, etiquette? Every time she answered the phone, she's, like, yelling into it. She's like, hello? Pardon? <laughs> hello? Who is this? I'm like, who? This is before these calls are coming in. Who talks like that on the phone? I was very confused. Like, it sounds like my grandmother or something. Hello? Eric? Is that you? It did sound a little like like uh, Audrey Hepburn and Breakfast at Tiffany's or like a really proper phone voice from another era. Yes. Hello. Yeah. And she, she and she's speaking to like a dirty caller, you know, and she still treated him with such manners. It's kind yeah. Of Pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna lick you. Pardon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and uh, Margot Kidder, who was in Amityville Horror a few years later. Yep. And many other things, but just sticking kind of the horror. Superman, she was Lois Lane. Yep. So as soon as I saw her come down the stairs, like, how do I know this person? Yeah. And it's because I, you know, grew up on the old Supermans from the 70s and 80s. and The smoky voice is impossible to to not recognize. It's like the Stevie Nicks of acting, you know? Like, she's got that that smoky voice that you always know. Yeah. She's even smoking in this movie, too, which is great. And drinking and feeding alcohol to a child, I might add. But I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Don't get all schnockered over there. (laughs) Anything else? You want to jump to opening scene? Yeah, I think we can go to the opening. Which I think was phenomenal. I think we're all going to agree. Amazing. Um, you already touched on it, you know, when we were going over the uh, synopsis or kind of the uh, breakdown of the movie, that it was one of the first movies to use the point of view. 
Yeah, you and get to I, see I, from the killer's perspective. Which I, I think was a, a pretty, you know, at the time, I think it was only the second movie to use it, right? Peeping Tom in the 1960s kind of used it. Yep. You might, in the show notes, you kind of mentioned in a movie even before that maybe. But uh, the fact that they kind of used that where you're looking at this house, it's decorated, you got Christmas music in the background. I think it was Silent Night. Silent Night, yep. And you're just looking at this nice house, lit up. And then you start getting closer, and then you hear footsteps, heavy breathing, some snorting. Like, this guy's kind of like... He's got, like, sleep apnea or something, but, <laughs> I mean, I'll just say, like, whatever whatever mental asylum he broke out of, they were probably feeding him Twinkies all day. So you, you just got this this thing, right? We don't know what it, you know who or what it is, is walking up to this house, and you don't know what's inside the house. You, like a part, you can tell there's, there's like a party going on or something in there. And then you saw the Greek letters, and you're like, all right, kind of putting it together, you know, maybe, you know, I guess it's sorority. And then they go inside, yeah. right? Well, he, then, he's kind of panning around. Well, I think what happens is you, you're kind of figuring out, like, the door is kind of cracked open, he's panning around, and then you see him look over, and there's like a trellis that goes up the entire building. So I think we're to believe that he use the trellis to get upstairs, not the door. Yeah, because there was some cinematography of him actually climbing up, too, that yeah. was, was pretty unique at the time. It was kind of, IMBD kind of highlighted it, how they did that, which was pretty cool. Um, and then they, I guess, get right into the house, and then there's a kind of a party, and now you get introduced to Barb running down the stairs. She gets the first line in the movie, I think, who left the goddamn front door open, which gives you a little like sense of what you're dealing with with oh, this yeah. character. She's tough. Mm-hmm. She's, She's got a mouth, too. Yes. <laughs> Next scene, or do you, anything else to talk about on the opening scene that you want to highlight there, Eric? Or No, I, I think what, what I like about it is that um, and I think it, the theme is is regular in the entire movie is that there's a lot of contrast. And so I think like you hear this – and first of all, I don't know what verse they had playing from Silent Night, but it was not anyone that I'm familiar with. The lyrics were like way off. I'm like, I don't know what this verse is. There must be like 19 verses in that song. But anyway, they're, they're playing beautiful Christmas music. You see you know, snowy landscape, lights, party. Everyone's having a good time. But then it's sort of like the juxtaposition of this like weird like – you know, frantic kind of camera motion and breathing and all that stuff. So, like, <clears throat> I think that in general, even the name of this film is there to sort of like put that contrast together. Like, everyone talks about White Christmas. Okay, we're making it Black Christmas. We're making it a little bit darker. We're making it sinister. And so, I like that theme throughout the film. There's a lot of different pieces where that kind of falls into place. But I think the opening really sings to it the best. Hundred percent. So let's go to the second segment, the drop when shit gets real. Eric, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, mine's pretty early on. I don't. I didn't mark the time because I feel like I didn't even get a chance to like sit down yet. But um, <laughs> the drop is uh, when Claire gets murdered. So Claire is um, one of the sorority sisters who gets a little bit annoyed that Barb is kind of like you know screwing around with the prank caller that's calling in and so she gets offended runs upstairs she's petting her cat you can tell that she's probably um you know like maybe the the, the prude of the group mm-hmm. um but then so we're so we're to believe yeah but then there's like a bunch of rustling around going in the closet and you kind of see these these glimpses of whoever has snuck into the house or at least you believe because it's kind of showing it from both angles you see it from Claire's perspective then you see it from the killer's perspective kind of back and forth until he takes what's like a I don't know what to call it like a garment cover like a plastic 
like dress cover or something. And he comes out of the closet and basically suffocates her. And it's just like the whole scene is terrifying because it has that constant back and forth angle. Um, so for me, he's in the house and he murders his first sorority girl. And she sticks around throughout the whole movie. And she makes, you know, she is a very pivotal like piece, like or corpse her corpse yeah, yeah up in the attic and yeah it's it's gr- great that they keep showing back she kind of reminds me of that weird uh uh dinosaur thing from mario 2 that spits out the eggs oh you know because <laughs> her yeah why is her, her mouth, mouth is, like, stuck why is her open? mouth still open the plastic's just keeping it open i guess i guess i don't yeah. know uh but yeah if, even if you're looking at the you know avatar or or the um you know if you're looking at it the movie credit or the poster uh she's on it sitting in a chair with like a a reef around her huh have you have, did you see the avatar for the or the the poster yeah there's her. a yeah she's like on a lot of them it's like it's that and then it's i think she this. she had maybe three minutes of screen time and she's kind of the on the poster so it's like she's well, the first dead yeah and uh and, so it, it that meant something or like her death meant something to this movie i guess Joey, the drop. The drop. Um, so for me, it was when um, after the intro, you're inside the house and they get a call and it's the caller, you know, or who we think is Billy, this character that's left kind of un- ambiguous. But the girls gather around the phone um, and the caller is using this this obscene language for a film in 1974. Some of the words he uses um, are, 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 are still quite like like terrible today um and in that moment i was reminded of what um we were saying earlier about the intro the juxtaposition of christmas and horror and if the if this film is willing to take such a holy and uh warm thing as christmas and suddenly move into horror what else is it willing to do and then when you get this call and and he's using this language that's like somewhat shocking to hear even to the modern ear it's you know the things he's saying to these girls about what he wants to see and do with them is um another thing where i'm like wow this film is willing to go there and for me it's a it's a drop because i felt it in my gut a little bit like this film is um not afraid to really transgress and subvert um tradition and um and uh, traditions of of holidays even traditions of horror movies and um you know it's a moment where i realized i was in for a bumpy ride like this movie was going to um, break some rules and and do some things. Yeah. It was going to get uncomfortable, and and it delivers that way um, ultimately. But yeah, uh, great point. And I think what I read is that when they when the girls are actually around the phone and they're doing the piece where they're getting the the phone calls, is that they just had something really mild there for them. They were basically like, just react to like someone offending you or doing whatever, and they actually did the actual dialogue in post, and I don't think anyone knew what it was going to be. And it was like, like you said, it was filthy. filthy. Like it was just... <laughs> see you next You got to watch it. See, see you next Tuesday was was pretty much the word they were using. Left pretty right. piggy. Like it was... Yeah. And it was... And I thought what, what I read on IMBD is that it was one of the first times that word was used in movie. And one of the last. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, it's not a word that I'm going to want to say or ever want to say. So Yeah, but it takes it me. there right away, and <laughs> you really know you're in for it. You I know. mean, I've said it every now and then if I get cut off in traffic, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not to a group of sorority girls. <laughs> Definitely no. not. All right, so for me, the drop came much later, and it's the urban legend trope uh, that really that this movie really kind of spearheaded um, was when the the cops that were involved with trying to figure out who this stranger was or who these calls were coming from. They were doing an investigation. They tapped the phones. Eventually, about an hour or a little bit past, past an hour into the movie, the cops call and say, the call's coming from in the house. So to me, I was like, oh, shit. And then deaths started happening pretty pretty quickly after that. So to me, that was uh, when, when Jess found out that the call was coming from in the house. I was just like, and it's that fear that I'm like, oh, man, what would you do? <laughs> you know, like we, we had a segment about that, but uh, we're not going to talk about that in this show. But that's how I felt. It's like if, if a call is coming from inside your house. And you know that that uh, the cops are nowhere near you. So it's like, what do I and that deputy leave? was definitely fired, right? He's Nash? like, if you fuck this one up, I will kill Dep- you. Deputy Nash? <laughs> deputy Nash. If you fuck this one up, I will kill you. He's like, Jess, listen. He's inside your house, all right? What are you going to do? <laughs> Don't <laughs> ask questions. What? Just go outside. And she's she like, still but I need can't to get, follow. I need to get Bob and I need to get Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no, no, listen. Listen to me. Go walk out the fucking door, turn the handle, walk outside, and stay out there. She's like, but Bob and Phil. <laughs> He's like, Jesus Christ, lady, can you listen to me for two seconds? <laughs> yep, so that was, that was, that was, uh, like, and you were, Joey was talking to me on the way when we were coming over here that, that, that trope was, uh, that, that urban legend that call coming from in the house. I mean, everyone's heard that story or seen other movies. Like, what'd you say, 1970? Eight, nine, the Stranger Calls. When the Stranger Calls, yeah, was a movie that came out a little bit later that we joked about in the in the pre-show notes. How, huh, I guess no one saw this movie, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> when a Stranger Calls got to take all the glory of introducing audiences to the he's calling from inside the house trope, yep. right? Uh, because nobody saw Black Christmas, so (laughs) (laughs) nobody knew that that was already in this. I mean, certainly some people saw it, right? But, yeah, yeah, you know, they got to freely steal it. Yeah, I wonder what the numbers, we talked about four four million, like, was that, like, over time it grossed? Because at the time, it wasn't wasn't received very well because of some of these, this language and the title and... I mean, they've done two remakes. I feel like both remakes have probably made more money. You know, like even the most recent one was like 2019 or something. That one was fucking terrible. Um, but the 2006 one wasn't bad. It just it tried to like tried it tried hard. to unmask what I think made this the original film so scary, which is that you don't know. And I think that was kind of the point of the film is like they want to keep you guessing. You don't want to. We don't want to know who. Well, we want to know what's going on with the with the moaner, the caller, Billy, whoever you want to call him. We want to know more about it. But they left it ambiguous for the reason that it's like. How much more fucking scary is it that you have no idea why this person came in and did this? And the fact that your mind is going to race and you're going to come up with all these different theories on why this happened is like what they want you to do because then you're going to remember the film. You know, if you're just like, yeah, I escaped from a mental asylum and killed a cat, like, it, you know, it doesn't do as much as what they what they really did. But maybe that's why it didn't really catch on in the horror genre because in the same year you you got a Leatherface, right? 
So yeah. like, what do you have for Black Christmas? Like, you don't even know what to call the the person. You don't know what they look like. You don't know their mo. Really, it's like Leatherface well, probably took all the glory because you had a name and a face to put to this maniac. Yeah, and and I, I, after doing some other trivia, there was a moment where they were saying how Bowden was he the serial killer in in, in uh, Canada, the vampire killer. Uh, remember this? I think it was he killed like three women in one night, and he kind of did this like stalkerish, like inside the house. Yep, yep. And um, there was like three women, and I think even I mean, if you think about it, too, Ted Bundy, Florida State did the same thing in a sorority house, uh, like four or five years later. So it's like, yep. you know, yeah, things that happened in real life. This movie kind of took from, and then it seemed like. Bundy wanted to saw the movie maybe and had inspiration <laughs> to go to Florida State. Who knows? But uh, there was some serial killer esque, which is always my favorite. How how does that play in? Because it feels like there's always something there. You know, they're 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 getting this inspiration from somewhere, right? So third segment, favorite death, Joey, favorite death. Mm. You know, I'm going to preface this by saying that, like, uh, I don't love this movie for the deaths. I like it for many other reasons, which we'll get to later. But, um, you know, the deaths for me are are not the main attraction. Um, that said, um, oh, I do like it when um, Margot Kidder's uh, character dies. Barb. Um, the reason I like it, so this is, um, you know, she, she's, she's killed with, I think, a, a glass unicorn. Um, and she's in bed, um, sleeping off, uh, you know, she's drunk and she's passed out. And, um, the reason I like it is because just a few scenes earlier, she has an asthma attack in bed and, um, someone gives her, her inhaler. She uses the inhaler and she calms down again and she goes back to sleep. And so when, when she, when the killer comes to like stand over her a few scenes later, still in the bed asleep, um, you wonder, is she going to get out of this again? You know, she, she, then the last scene, she used an inhaler and, and, and was fine. Will, will, will she escape? Um, you know, is she sort of a cat with nine lives? That was what I was thinking. I was hoping she did. I really was too. I did not want Barb to die. No. She had all the best lines and added such spunk to the movie. And you know, Jess's character was was frankly annoying, which we can get to at some point. <laughs> yeah, but you will. Um, but but Barb, um, you know, her death. You know, it wasn't that gory or anything or that great of a death. But he takes this beautiful um, unicorn and what, what what is the crystal? Uh oh, not Swarovski. Swarovski. What? Swara. Wow. <laughs> we are... <laughs> clearly, we, clearly, we shop at Claire's. Yeah. <laughs> and Swarovski. <laughs> it's one of those figurines that that were collected, and so he kills her with that. Um, and that's great. And um, then as she's dying, she knocks over all these other glass figurines yeah, with she's her got a hand. Bunch of them. <laughs> and there's something about her hand knocking over these other glass figurines. That like um, was just a beautiful scene for me. Seeing the glass fall and her hand pull it down, and these are like some heavy weighted like figurines. Um, you know, I was very surprised that she died when she yeah. did, or I didn't necessarily think she would die at all. But she uh, deserved that great scene, though. Obviously, yes. I think that they they gave they her gave the best, her a proper sense. One of the best. Yeah, I have the same thing. But I feel like they didn't give her enough dignity, right? Because like I feel like. Before she died, she didn't get to have that like barb one liner or 
like this is true. A chase, you. Like you want her to get chased or something, right? She just she's like sedated in her bed and she gets killed by a unicorn. It's like yeah, you know, I take back what I said. Yeah, they didn't give her a, ju- a good send off. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I think you're right that like they gave her, a, um, you know, she looked good in the bed and there was the it was very dramatic flailing around and hitting the glass figurines. But yeah, it was um, unbefitting of somebody with such a sharp mouth, such a sharp tongue. She had, she, she didn't you, get to use it. If you made that film modern day, they would have her get up and she'd hit him with a baseball bat. There'd be a little bit of a chase and then she'd die. Yeah. But no fight from her. There'd be insults for sure. There'd be very witty insults against the killer. Um, and in, in this case, yeah, she just sort of, yeah, how, how um, what, what do you call that? Anticlimactic when, um, you know, this, this fiery woman like gets too drunk and passes out and then just sort of practically dies in her sleep. She's barely awake long enough to know what's happening when he hits her. Yeah, I, I thought the scene was great. It's just, you, yeah, you did expect more from Barb. Like, they give her a slightly more proper send-off than just, like, an easy kill for Billy, you know? Because mm-hmm. she was not an easy match on the phone, so mm-hmm. why make her an easy death? She was a tough match for him on the phone. She was a tough match for the police in the police station in one scene. Yep. Um, yeah, she really stands her ground and is courageous and... Um, uh, I have a few things to say in the hot take section about um, the, the the role of, of of women and men in this movie, and I think that um, she really does a lot with that. And yeah, it's surprising that um, she doesn't get in a little, uh, you know, some insults or some swift kicks to the crotch or something. Yeah, agreed. So the good news is I had the same one, so I don't have to pontificate on that. Uh, but I will say that what I did like about the other, you know, other than the crystal, the unicorn. That when the reflection in the mirror, did you know this is skull? Mm-mm. So when the when you're in the scene, there's like a reflection. It's like a probably a mirror or something. But there is a skull in the center of the picture when it's a, when he's about to kill her. So huh. I'm like, where did that skull come from? Why is it in her room? Or is that like a meaningful thing of like? You know, it's a skull. It's death. Like this is what's happening. It's decoration on the wall. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's what it looks like. Well, well clearly there's something Maybe with it's the like decor. A poster. Because Claire's room has some interesting decor in it, yeah. and they seem to make a big point of some of the posters on Claire's wall. Yes. So <laughs> I, I think these were purposely chosen decor. Yeah, and I, I felt it, it, if you look at that scene when it's happening, uh, you know, for you viewers, it's right in the center. So it's like, and it's it's a reflection. Yeah. And it's a skull. It's a white skull that pops up, and I was like, I, that caught my eye. Well, and that entire death scene is is really good because it's the first time you get to see, you actually get to see the killer. Um, it's very, it's dark, but you will get this like one fragment of light, which you kind of think is maybe even from a reflection of the glass unicorn, maybe because it's only like covering a small portion of his face, so you can tell he's got like you know the swoopy seventies like you know Peter Brady bangs, but at the same time, he has this like one bulging creepy yeah. eye and the eye like becomes kind of symbolism a couple times in the film where you only get to see the eye um but it looks like it's a creepy eye like don't get me wrong like <laughs> this is an eye I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to gaze into yeah we we should note here that that Jess um towards the end of the movie when she has sort of her um showdown um in the basement uh there there's a scene where the light plays on her eyes and you see the fear in her eyes 
Um, in fact, it's probably one of the, my favorite moments with that character because, again, she annoyed me. But, but in the moment, her eyes expressed so much um, fear, like, um, and and the light playing off of these terrified, bulging, huge eyes. I thought was very powerful in her basement scene. And, and w- funny about that is that same year, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and we talked about this on our very first episode. Check it out. Is that um, Sally's eyes when she's when she's finally getting away in oh, the yeah. pickup truck, or even at the dinner table scene? Like her eyes are so expressive, like. There, there's something really, um, like you, you're really drawn into like understanding the level of fear just by looking at the eyes, and same thing in yep. this film too. So it's crazy that like they were happening in '74. Movies, they yeah. both had this like parallel thought of like this is a great way to express focus on fear. the eyes. Must have came from Psycho. I mean, you can't, you can't. True. It, it seems very like Hitchcock, where you're. You're not gonna say Hitchcockian like you usually do. Yeah, and and it doesn't seem to me like an easy thing to pull off as an actor, um, showing that fear. Yeah, I think you 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 really test your metal as an actor if yeah, if, if, if you're forced into a scene where your eyes have to do all the talking. Yeah, Agreed. Eric, what do you got? Um, I think there's a lot of there's there's very few kill scenes in the movie, and they're all very good. Um, but since it's the one that we really haven't talked about, I actually like Mrs. Mac. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so what is going on there? So she's looking for the cat and she hears it up in the attic somehow. And so she decides to climb up the attic. And then as she's up there, she's looking around. She's like, I got I to gotta clean this place. And what you see from the perspective of Billy is that he's holding on to this really heavy hook that's attached to a rope. And he's just sitting there kind of waiting. It was like a that. pulley system yeah. from like a stage. Is, like, what is it is doing? Is that a normal thing in an attic? <laughs> My no. guess is they probably use it to pull heavy stuff up there because uh, yeah, when you like there was there was other because they only have a really straight ladder to get up there so if you're trying to like bring up like a big box there's no way to there do that go. so yeah. the, it made sense as a pulley system um but he he's holding on to this and she's looking around and she sees it's dusty it's dirty whatever um but then she starts seeing that there is claire claire's in the rocking chair with the plastic bag overhead and she kind of panics and looks over and you see Billy again holding on to this big like you know metal hook. And at first I think this motherfucker's gonna Peter Pan his way over and drop kick her in the head. But no, <laughs> he just lets it go and swings it down and it catches Barb or not Barb, sorry, Mrs. Mac in the neck. But for some reason, even going through like her jugular, she's making all these sounds. Ah! She's screaming and stuff. Um, and there always seems to be every time there's a scream in the film, there's something else going on that they can't hear the scream. Like, so there's a guy knocking at the door at this scene. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of funny. Like, he, he's not hearing that. Um, one question I do have about Mrs. Mack, though, is do you think that it's Mrs. Mack as in Kurt Russell's wife when he's in the thing later? So she's Mrs. Mack. I mean, they look like they'd be a good pair. They don't seem the right age, though. But she's uh, a. She seems a little frisky, right? A little bit she's, of a cougar. She's a little, she's a little frisky, so <laughs> she's got she's got she's got some great lines. And she's she got likes booze hidden everywhere. Yeah. And she loves to drink. And, and they allude to a vaudeville pass for her, and there's a record playing of like apparently she recorded it. The McHenry sisters. Oh, yep. And <laughs> yep. You, you get the sense that this woman has has been around the block. She's seen life, and um, you know it's it's interesting that both she and Barbara are basically drunk when they're killed as well. Um, 
you know, two female characters. Although Mrs. Mack is drunk the entire movie. Yeah. For that matter, Barb is drunk most of the movie too. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to that that idea of there being horror movie rules about not drinking, they both follow that rule of getting killed uh, and not because they drank, but the fact that they drank certainly, uh, I think, implies something about their moral character. Big time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So let's go segment four. Well, that was dumb. We'll do rapid fire. Eric, go... Why don't you spit one off right now? Um, but one of my favorite parts is, uh, but it's dumb is that after they find the high school girl dead in the park, which we can only assume was Billy's first murder as he's making his way to the sorority, right? Because there seems to be a thing where every time there's a dead body, the phone calls happen. So the first phone call that happens makes sense to me that he ends up at the sorority house, but on his way there, he runs into this teenage girl and kills her. But anyway, point being, they apparently the cops put out a search party and fucking Bert and Ernie personified come to the door and they're like, oh, I was looking to see if you found anything that's been a bit odd around here. I'm like, you two showing up up at my door like (laughs) Elmer Fudd with a shotgun is the most (laughs) odd thing that's happened all night. So um, we will shut the door now. Merry Merry Christmas. (laughs) It's like, what is going on? Well, and when they leave, they say, there's a lot of us in the search party out tonight, so if you see other men coming to your door, it's okay. What a confusing (laughs) message (laughs) when there's a killer out there how do you know which is the search party and which is the killer well the ones looking for the wascally wabbit are the <laughs> are the search party all right well that was dumb alcohol mouthwash anybody yeah what a waste of good booze yeah she spit it out too yeah keeping yeah. it in the uh, upper decker part of the tank there too the upper decker yeah be careful <laughs> joey um so there's a scene and I forget whether it's when um Barb is killed or when Phil is killed but basically the Vienna boys choir shows up to the door and like these <laughs> children are singing so well their performance is virtuoso agreed like they there's the soaring heights that their voices reach and the perfect harmonies are exquisite and i just think it's hilarious that these neighborhood children show up to sing christmas carols at the door and Je- and Jess is enjoying it, right? Je- well, she- Jess is, you know, Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, right? And her face takes on this sort of angelic, almost like ecstatic, spiritually mystic look as, as she watches these children because it's the Vienna Boys Choir that. And you can come. tell she's foot tapping offbeat in the background. <laughs> I did not notice that, but I did think that the choir was overwrought, overdone. I mean, it was beautiful, but I mean, it made me remember the fact that I'm watching a movie. <laughs> because this wouldn't happen. In I, real I life. said the same thing to Andrea. I was like, "They're killing this! Like this is an amazing. They'd be selling out like Madison Square Garden. Never mind going door to door for a nickel from PBS Pledge Drive. <laughs> yeah, right exactly. there. Was yeah. somebody dying at the same time as that? The yeah. scene. That's yeah, why okay. um, Olivia Hussey misses yet another death. Right. Uh, Olivia being the the actress yes. who plays Jess. Yes. All right. Another one. Um. I'm going to go with Claire's boyfriend's choice to wear the David Putty man fur. Mm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It wasn't a good look. (laughs) It made me wonder, like, in 1974 in 
Toronto or wherever this was shot, like, was that a, the fashion? Because uh, I thought that was a pimp outfit, really. Like, it, it was like a full-length fur coat. You know, Joe, Joe Namath wore it on the sidelines for the Jets probably around the, right around the same time. I he was, was a hockey player. I, I think it was a cool thing to do. Mm. Which I got to say, watching the movie again, when you see him, he, he plays goalie on the hockey team. Yes. The fucking goalie mask would have been a great horror mask in, in any movie. It was like... It wasn't like super Jason esque. It was like it just had its own vibe where it almost looked like um like a tiki sculpture or something. But it was really cool. I'm like that would be a great horror. But mask. why was hockey even in this movie? Just because we were in Canada? Like oh we gotta throw hockey in here somewhere. Well they needed they needed um I feel like maybe they were trying to build that you know Claire was kind of this timid prude, but she was dating like a jock. You know like. And maybe a that goalie was, for the hockey team, and they wanted you to think that the maybe, most psychotic, like maybe he was responsible <laughs> right. for Claire, or like they wanted to maybe go down that. But road. he seemed like a super nice guy. He was very involved well, with that search and really need, meeting the dad and all. that I mean, stuff. he wasn't he very was, kind to animals, but <laughs> I think the fur coat was enough to make you suspect his motives. It was very glam rock, and it makes <laughs> you know. So it suggested that behind the nice veneer could have been a cross-dressing serial killer or something like that. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> <laughs> because we all know if you're a transvestite in the 1970s, you're the killer. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. Yeah. Um, answering the phone? Kind of dumb. Multiple times. Let's keep trying to find this guy. And the phone plays a huge theme and he's in the house. I don't know. Just stop answering the phone. <laughs> you don't, don't subject yourself to all that language. And then to stay on the phone, right? Yeah, just let's like what? Especially Who do you bar- want to talk to? Yeah, What's the first your name? the first scene they just drew that out, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, sir, you don't need to use that language with me. I'm a classically trained actress. Like, <laughs> yeah, she te- she just treat him quite nicely. Um, for I guess uh, not to beat a dead horse with all the dumb things, but like another thing that I noticed was um, Mr. Harrison's character. This is Claire's father. Um, I thought he was in the movie far too often. I thought that at, towards the end of the movie, it almost seemed like the actor, the character, the actor didn't know why he was still in it. Like it just like every scene, he was sort of like looking scared and shocked and like, is my is my daughter dead? Um, and, but it didn't really ever do anything to advance the plot that he was there, other than he he presented perhaps a, a suspect for the murders. But, um, yeah, after, like, the fifth scene where they showed that man's face, I was like, this is getting old. This is dumb. Yeah, to kind of compare it, like, you kind of think that if you're going back to watch this film now and you've seen Halloween, like, you think he's maybe going to be, like, a Loomis, you know what I mean? Like, he's there to help, and he's going to be the one that maybe, like, lasts to the end and and helps subdue the killer or something, but... He never has any action. He's just there. No. He doesn't do anything heroic. Even no. when the cops are like implying that his daughter is like, you know, a loose woman, he really doesn't have much to say about that. <laughs> I thought he was honestly, I thought he was there just to bone Mrs. Mack, but that <laughs> yeah, never I thought happened. there was gonna be something happening there. <laughs> that would have been a pairing, yes. yes. <laughs> One true pairing, those two. Anything else? Um I was gonna say, uh, Barb getting a small child drunk and then saying he schnockered, which I'd never heard that term before, but I love it. <laughs> Good term. I don't know why that scene was there. I guess to suggest that she's truly a depraved individual 
uh, that and getting a child drunk. And I guess we're supposed to. It is the Porky's director, right? I mean, I guess we got to see scenes like yeah, that. again. It, to me, it was still like it was still a little bit of that, like light fluffy Christmas and derangement and it was in a, a different form but it, yeah it was still there it's like you have all these kids and they're there celebrating Christmas and doing fun things with all these people but there's one that's getting drunk and yeah you, you something's wrong here yeah you're yeah. watching it and you're like oh this is yet again gone too far this movie like there's something wrong and did about that start, all of it did that start the trope like similar to what they talked about in Scream where it's like you know, don't do X, Y, Z, is that, like, they wanted, maybe they wanted you to want Barb to die because she's likable, but she also, at the same time, like, fucked around with the cops during the investigation and then got a child drunk and, like, I don't know, it just seems like maybe they were Calls her make, mother a gold-plated whore. Like, maybe, yes. she, maybe she deserved <laughs> it, you know? <laughs> Although it sounds like the mother had it coming. Yes. She didn't, she didn't have a very nice mom. No. From what I could hear on the phone. Yeah, she was going out with some guy and not picking she her wouldn't up. Let, she wouldn't let Barb come home for Christmas. Yeah. That's why Barb got so drunk. Yeah. Way to go, Mom. It's uh, the mom in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, <laughs> the bad mom. bad parents in horror movies are yeah. a dime a dozen. Yep. Uh, last Well, last one I have is uh, when uh, Lieutenant Fuller, they're going to wiretap the phones. They tap the two phones except the other phone. Oh, we don't have to tap that phone. We'll, we'll head out. I was like, oh, that's dumb. <laughs> that just, the whole movie goes down the drain, I guess, if you tap that wire. <laughs> like, they'll know right away that it's coming from inside the house. It took, like, multiple calls for them to figure this out. Multiple people died. So, yep. Yep. I thought I was, I was pretty dumb. So, good? Are we good with that? Or you got any more? Yeah. No, that's it. Go. All right. I mean, other than the other than the use of the c word a million times in the film, I think that was the only other. Yeah, that was dumb. And I it, mean, dumb by today's standards. Maybe then it was okay. <laughs> I think that word was ahead of its time back then too. I don't. Was that a very popular word in 1974? It must have been a shocking word to hear on yes. tel- on a movie. Like, and I have I have more to say about that. All right, later. <laughs> All right, let's get into hot takes. I'll start it off. I'll start us off. The movie title. Black Christmas, you alluded to it already. That hey, that that could have been sounding bad even in 1974. Well, today I think it sounds really bad. Uh, yeah, they were afraid. There, there would... is a better title out there. There really was Black Christmas. Huh? Okay, they were. I don't, they were... I don't think that would age well today. Yeah, they were afraid it was going to sound too much like a black exploitation film, and I think that that was around the time that a lot of them were coming out. Black Belt Jones and like. Well, it's funny. You know, so I'm doing my Google you know, or not Google search, but I'm doing my. Uh, Amazon search and I'm I'm putting in black B B L A C K and then it would just come up black Christmas movies and I'm like nope that's that's not what I'm looking for um up oh, there's black Christmas yep. <laughs> it's just like what, what is it t- trying to tell me to navigate to it's like no no I'm actually looking for this <laughs> It's just occurring to me that it's the opposite of White Christmas. I didn't really think of that while I was watching the movie. You know, like I'm dreaming of a White Christmas, yep. but this is your 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 Black Christmas nightmare. The opposite of what it's supposed to be. Yep. yep. Uh, clearly, you both already uh, observed that. Um, <laughs> but there's something very um, wh- poetic about the title, um, Black Christmas. Aside from the black exploitation 
thing um, to me is a very like evocative title. It really makes me think of like this. Um, I don't know, like not a Porky's movie by any means. Like it's like it's like a. I I, I like the title. Um, I think that there's something in it that's like sort of hauntingly frightening and kind of poetic. So I'm um, I'm glad that that it's got the title. You got it. Hot take over there. Um, lot of so I would say that um, there's a certain part um where there's a the sorority sisters are talking about how um someone got raped or something and um, Barb says, "Well, you can't rape a townie." <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna say, <laughs> pretty, "You said it. You yeah. said it." I was hoping it would come out in the pod, and it did. You're welcome. Like, thank you. <laughs> shocking. Like, you know, we, we've we heard and seen everything, but a little shocking can, to hear that. Can we just clip that line as a promo for this episode? Just like that one line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That'll be the intro. You're already way ahead. <laughs> I'm on it. And it made me think about that line a little bit too much, and it made me feel a little uncomfortable, but I thought about it. I'm like... Wow, that's really out. You know, that's that's really saying something there. Yeah, I, Misogynist, I don't, don't want to go down there, but uh, classist. Like it's, yeah, yeah. It's, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. My turn. Yeah, your turn. hot take. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> like any day now, it's my, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my hot take is that this is a transgressive movie. Um, there's a lot of transgressive things happening in this film, and horror in and of itself is transgressive. We know that, but um, you know, this movie deals with heavy themes, including abortion. Um, and there is a, uh, a plot line about the main character, Jess, who wants to get an abortion. And, you know, Peter, her boyfriend, is very upset about this and trying to tell her not to. And she's sort of saying, this is my decision and I, I want to, you know, do it for these reasons. Um, and it's articulated so clearly. Um, and, and it gets a lot of lines in the script. The, yeah. the, the you know the topic and the word abortion just like we're talking about the c word there's certain words like the c word and the a word that when you you know abortion when you hear them you 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 notice that the word has been spoken and you pay attention um and the amount of times that that topic is discussed in this movie um made me think how did how did anybody go see this because um, I don't know that like a, ma- a mainstream audience in 1974 necessarily like would be clamoring to like see a movie with with that topic coming up yeah. so much. Um, I think it, you know it was a very difficult topic then, just as it is today, um, and it seemed very ahead of its time, like perhaps too ahead of its time yeah. in the in its treatment of the topic because it it isn't treated in a way that. Um, makes you dislike the character. Um, you don't dislike her for wanting an abortion. She doesn't die. Um, you, you, well, we don't know if that character dies at the end or not, but but she certainly isn't murdered on screen. Um, like you might expect um, somebody who is... Um, you know, like 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 in other um, films that, especially in like Reagan's 1980s, like a character considering an abortion probably would have been 
killed off for that reason. Yeah. Um, and in this film, it's 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 not the case, and um, it's kind of related to um, the topic of uh, female sexuality and female um, uh, action or fe- female. Um, What's that word? Agency. Uh, the word is agency when a female can sort of do what she wants. Um, Margot Kidder, Barb, Barb's char- the Barb character, like like is very empowered. She speaks to the police. She dresses them down. She makes yeah. fun of them. She makes a fool of them. As a public servant, you suck. Yeah. Um, and there are multiple parts in this movie where the, the women in the film basically write off the police as idiots. Uh, there are moments in the film where where the police are seen by the viewer as idiots. Yep. Um, and 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 the women in this film are very uh, over and over left to fend for themselves, um, and and oftentimes in in some cases, um, you know, you're you're rooting for them, um, and and so there's something in there about gender, I think, and there's something in there about like um, um, authority. Um, that that the, I don't know exactly what the film is trying to say, other than it's giving a lot of space um, to sort of like upend um, what we expect from a typical hero or heroine and villain, um, and and allows like women a lot more latitude um, to have agency and choose what they want to do, including with their own body, as it, with yeah. that topic, um, than, than other films of the era. And did you notice that Jess had a cross on her neck? What an interesting scene where suddenly yeah. Jess's crucifix necklace is she, so she visible. She had it the whole time. Yeah, well, there, but but the the part where she's telling Peter she wants an abortion. It's really like, let's pop out that collar a little bit. Let's notice the cross a little bit. The cross bit. is displayed. It's very, very another. On purpose. Another, yeah. There's yeah, we all, we all, I think we all caught that. That was one thing I, I was noticing in there that it's like they were they were adding this sort of like religious element to it too. So it's like this during that conversation like, where it's just like, it, Whoa, it was well, meant to this say isn't ungodly, right? Like, <laughs> right. Like here's this person, this character who inhabits like her own, um, r- spirituality as a Catholic, apparently, um, who also wants an abortion yeah. and both things exist at the same time in this character and you use the word agency to have like, this is what she wants. Yeah. I'll take. I'll take. You got any more? I got one more. I got one more, too, but this one's going to knock your socks off. All right, knock them off, man. Claude. What a great name for a cat. Claude. <laughs> just going to say it. I loved it. I kept thinking, I'm like, I just want, I want to name a cat Claude. I don't know. It just it just knocks it out of the park what's, for me. What's so. your cat's name? Sadie. Sadie. Yeah. You, I'm, I'm going to change her name to Claude when I go Claude. back upstairs. She's now Claude. A- all right. Oh, Only Claude's gonna eat salmon tonight. Claude. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's a very refined name for a cat. It's a very serious name. It's a beautiful cat. Okay, that wasn't my real one, but um, <laughs> uh, the incompetence of the PD, right? Like, <laughs> yes. yeah. Like there's there's so many like parallels that they're not bringing together that are like kind of shocking to me. And it's like every time there's like a serious complaint, and it's sort of like again this dismissive male nature. Like 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 Joey was talking about, like dismissive male nature and then this defiance from the female characters. Like, go out the door and don't do anything. No, I'm going to get my friends. Or like, do not kill our baby. I'm going to kill our baby. Right. <laughs> but then, last but not least, is like, 
every time they're like, I'm getting obscene phone calls, there's something happening, and I'm very worried about it. They're like, it's probably just a boyfriend playing a joke on you. Yeah, down to the last scene of the movie when the credits roll, right? Yep. It just makes such, it puts such a fine point on the incompetence of police uh, at the end of this film. It's making a statement there. It's, yeah. And, and that's probably a message that pe- that uh, a director would have a lot of fun with in 2021. Yes. Uh, not that it's much of a hot take, but I wrote it down for here. And we, I'm just asking you guys, are you Team Barb or Team Jess? <laughs> Isn't it obvious? I can't stand Jess. <laughs> She's so annoying. Barb all the way. What do you... I've seen... I've seen Jess's bosoms. I'm going to go with Jess. All right. Uh, I'm definitely team Barb, and it was a lot of the dialogue she had. And it's Lois Lane. I mean, come on. I I knew her right away. I just clicked. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think it's worth going back to that statement about the bosoms, though, because you don't see them in this movie, do you? Not a one. Or or any, right? Yeah, you saw them in another movie. Yeah, so that's Romeo and Juliet. But I remembered them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but no, it's, I mean, it's worth noting that, that, that yeah, there's no. not female nudity in this that I can remember. No. I don't think that was a, a, it wasn't a huge theme in a lot of the 70s. Like, it didn't really come in the 80s where it was like, all right, it's sort of like when I, there's a great scene from Kerber Enthusiasm where they're talking about how they are trying to pitch a show to like NBC and they're like, well, NBC's not going to work out. We're going to go to HBO. And they're like, well, you throw in a fuck, you double your laughs and we can swear on HBO. So I think like, that's what I think brought a lot of like additional fanfare to horror was the fact that they were like it was a movie we're just gonna sneak this in here that they were gonna show nudity in and so like get away with it. You didn't have to watch a romance flick if you didn't want to. You could watch a horror movie and you were gonna see the same amount of nudity. So um, you know, I think that we have to call it out um that that's a big piece of horror is nudity. It happened in a lot of the films. Um, at least the best films, right? <laughs> well, it's almost like this movie makes a conscious decision to not include nudity because it includes such uh, other topics that that are, you know, w- would certainly give the MCAA or whatever that ratings agency is, give them pause, right? The abortion right. stuff, the C-word stuff. These are things, that, feeding a child alcohol on camera and making it look fun. These are things <laughs> that like, um, you know, the, the director holds no punches in and in including some transgressive stuff and yet includes no nudity. Yeah, that Bob Clark was probably in the cutting room. He's like, you know what? We're gonna have to cut that uh, Mrs. Max sex scene out. There's no way that we're gonna get, get an R rating with this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he had Porky's, so he's kind of like, I'm gonna get my fill over there. Yeah, with all the nudity and keep it. He dead. showed remarkable uh, restraint for some reason in this <laughs> sophomore effort. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, well, the famous scene was the shower scene. <laughs> it was. Uh, Where yeah, he's, he's like he's putting his his penis through the wall um, in the girl's shower, which and... is another movie. Okay, Bob Clark, right? So uh, not not that we have to go down Porky's too far, but I'm just saying how if you watch that that movie just could never last today or never be made. Like, how can both movies come out of the same person? Right. I guess that's my point. It's like one well, is like Christmas this story. progressive movie, and then one is just this trash. That could never be. Even if a tw- in 2021 someone watched it now, they'd be like, "What the f is that?" Well, is it the theme that men kind of suck in a lot of these films? Like, yes. Porky's are showing like the worst Which side of like the adolescent or like teenage, like maybe college age male, and they're also showing the other part where it's like 
men think they have complete control over women. Like, it's, I suppose, it's, yeah, there could be an uh, Porky's could have been an elaborate send up of like the male sense of like authority and and domination. But you know, like obviously men are stupid, so they're like, well, <laughs> we love this movie. <laughs> like, well, we're kind of making fun of you a little. Men don't bit. even yeah. know they're being made fun of. Maybe <laughs> so. Yeah, right, I liked it. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> let's, let's get to the uh, the awards. We got four of them. We got Sue, which is the They Ain't Never Gonna Be Right. Joey, the Joey, the Joey uh, special. <laughs> I appreciate this category. Yes. I mean, this has always been one of my favorite. Like, she ain't never gonna be right, you know, Sue Snell. You you say that all the time about everything. So, <laughs> I mean, it's so clear that when you see somebody about to be scarred for life, you know, you, you know, you it like to point it out when too. you see it. It's worth, yeah, you <laughs> yeah. need to mark them. Up. Uh, Tommy Jarvis, which is the idiot, the 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 um um I'll I'll edit this uh, um let me think of the word I'm thinking of um the unsolicited hero. <laughs> yeah. It's like when a nurse like brings a patient to cardiac arrest and then saves them so she can be a hero. Tommy Jarvis, <laughs> that's you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Franklin, which is the annoying character that you're kind of the wet blanket wait, waiting to die. Let's waiting let's die, let's yeah. let's speed this up. And Judy, which is from Sleepaway Camp, the mean girl. All right, so let's start with Sue. What do we got? I think it's probably consensus here, right? Jess, Jess, gotta be Jess. Yeah. All right, Tommy Jarvis. I have Lieutenant Fuller and Officer Nash, Deputy Nash. No disagreements from me. Yeah, that's fair. Franklin. I have Peter. Because they were suspecting him, and he was just, I don't know, something about that character I just didn't like. And that, and that was the point, right? Mm-hmm. So. Agreed, Peter. Yeah. What's Maybe this? Jess, to some degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Jess, I really wanted to see her go. Um, that's this category, right? Yes, <laughs> it is. It is. One hundred percent. Yeah, there was just she was just so like, um, um, what's I don't know what bothered me about her so much. Hello, pardon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good manners. Um, but her she, playing Juliet and as Jess, like <laughs> she couldn't cross into <laughs> Shakespearean to just you're just a sorority girl. So calm, calm down. I, I have very strong opinions about like my female leads in horror movies, and yep. like they're, they're some of my favorite characters in in all of art. Okay, and this ain't one of them. <laughs> and, and to to have a lead like Jess's not played in the way I want it is just so. If very you flip the role of Jess me. and Barb, would would this movie be just like for me? Killer. Uh, yeah, it, it, I it would I would have been happier with that even even though Barb is not your traditional like like sort of pure heroine. Um but just J- Jess's purity, you know, her um well it's a weird purity, right? Cuz like she wants to, you know, she wants an abortion, right? But like <laughs> but she also is this very like um morally upstanding character uh, and, and that's interesting again that like the, the movie's basically saying, you know, like a morally upstanding character um can also want an abortion, but that's a digression. Mm-hmm. Uh she, she to me is a cold character. Uh she's played coldly. She is hard to access. Um it's hard for me to relate with her as a human. Um she doesn't show a ton of um emotion and we know that actress can show emotion so yes. it's it's the characters drawn in a strange way and um uh i would have been happier to see her go earlier 
<laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> no, no comment. Uh, Judy. I think I'm going with Barb. Yeah, I, I agree with Barb. I mean, she's not like unlikably mean <laughs> like Judy was, but... Her, her gruff personality. I I I only put her in for well. That. She she kind of she bullies Claire at the beginning a little bit. She's yeah. like, oh, I'll let her go, you know. So it's sort of like maybe she's a she's like the, the the sharp tongue in the group that is offending the prudes, and so she could be conceived as the Judy. I guess you know um, this character, the Judy. I love that there's a, a category for that because that's that character who forces reactions out of other characters in a movie. Yep. In the Breakfast Club, it's Judd Nelson, right? It's like the character uh, who is behaving in in a way that's usually mean that like makes other characters have to react to it and show their own colors. And I guess that's Barb here. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't, you know, really terrorize anyone too much, but um, you know, right. Uh, yeah, she's she's she must be the Judy. Okay, consensus there. So the only one is Franklin. We have a little different opinion, Peter and uh, Peter and Jess. I mean, you can have Peter. Jess is that's not a fair choice for me. I mean, you cl- you clearly can't have the main Peter, character. Peter's a bigger whiner, yeah. For sure. Oh, wait, he destroys that piano. Oh, that like- pissed me off when he said. <laughs> I have some that comments piano. on that on the soundtrack. Okay. <laughs> oh, perfect. So let's let's segue. Perfect segue. Let's get right into soundtrack. Uh, the ben- you know, even when I go on IMBD, I look at soundtrack. It just listed like six Christmas songs. It's a Christmas movie. Christmas song influence all over the place. He had the. Uh, the uh, children choir in there, um, so I, and Silent Night to start the movie. Uh, as far as it plays into the theme, I'm giving it a seven out of ten right off the rip. But uh, I'll let you uh, take this away, Eric. This is kind of your. I agree. Um, I I like that. There's a lot of like old-fashioned Christmas songs during really dark scenes. So I think that that plays really well. So we're not really talking about the score as much as soundtrack, um, but. Silent Night, Jingle Bells is in there. Um, uh, Come All Ye Faithful, um, all of that. I think really classic songs fit really well in there. Um, I do like Billy's rendition of uh, Little Baby Bunting. <laughs> he sings that quite a bit. In the song. Is that what that is? I don't know what the actual song is, but he kept saying Little Baby Bunting, something about hunting, a rabbit skin, rabbit skin. And he just kept singing this over and over, and he actually didn't. Yeah, he, he could hold a tune too. I don't know if he'd pass like a Simon Cowell, but it wouldn't be a no from me, dog. Um, <laughs> he was all right, um, but I do want to really. Other than the the score, I want to call out Peter's piano playing during the recital. <laughs> so why I, was why was that scene even in there? I I think it was the show that he was so affected by the fact that. Uh, Jess wanted to have an abortion that he couldn't play. He he looked like he had a foodborne illness at the piano. He's sweating <laughs> profusely. He's red. He can't hit the keys. All of a sudden, he's like, you know, Ray Charles without the talent. He can't find anything. And um, I would say that his song, I think the name of it was probably Diarrhea because that's what it <laughs> sounded like on the piano strings. Um, and I actually wanted to say that I think that his... Um, his song was better when he was hitting the piano with that music stand. 
<laughs> that sounded when better he was destroying to me. the piano. Yes, <laughs> it was a very discordant song. Yeah, I was wondering, <laughs> yeah. is it like Stravinsky or something? Like it felt like very, um, yeah, it was a very like stressful song. Well, some listen. of it sounded good, but then like he would hit all the wrong notes in certain parts, and you're like, okay, I don't think that's supposed to sound that way. Aggressive, <laughs> right? And what do they call it when you're playing hard on a piano? It's like a certain direction in the music. Um, it's not al dente because that's for food. Um, but, <laughs> I like it though. Um, <laughs> like you want to hit it firmly, <laughs> al dente. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forget the name of it, but but he was playing that way the whole time, like hitting the keys like really hard. There was no dynamic range on this. This was all one dynamic. Yeah, he was like the Metallica of. <laughs> You know, we wanted him to be a little more Pixies, and he was Metallica on this. Why level. was this a recital? Was he getting graded on this, or is this? His, well, he like- wants to be a professional musician. Okay. Like they talk about, like that's his whole dream. So he finally gets these, like you know, stiffs to sit down and like watch him play and the he just piano. Botches and, it, and he's like so affected by. And this was right after the scene that between Jess and him, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. It, it's he's sort- like you know how important he said you know how important my recital is Got today. It. Got it. Like, why are you telling me this? She's like, well, I'm just going to kill your baby. No big deal. <laughs> you know, it reminded me of uh, like a Mindy Kaling kind of scene in The Office or something, like where she like fucks with Ryan a lot. She's like, well, I'm pregnant. You know, she kind of like, it was like that kind of. <laughs> she plays a really cool. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> and he's freaking out. And- I've decided to kill our baby. He's like, I love that baby. I just found out about it, but I'm loving with it. What do you mean you're going to kill it? <laughs> you I just, got a piano recital it's today. It's funny you just did her accent because they never explain why this um, English. English woman is 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 it's at this school. I, I thought there would at least be some brief nod to her being an exchange student, but I didn't hear anything. Yeah, agreed. Nothing there. Um, but yeah, other than that, like the score, um, Carl Zittrer, um, it's a lot of like – uh, sound effects and some ambient noise, whistling. Uh, it, it, it's got some piano, some organ elements in there. I think it actually f- fits well, and I think that it doesn't it doesn't distract you from what's happening, which I like about it. And then I think all the different, like again, the contrast of all the different music that's playing during some of the the dark scenes. Um, I would give it probably uh, seven, seven and a half. Yeah. Ooh, wow, you gave it a half. Is that her first five? Half, is that her first half pointer? Might be. Yeah, good for you. You're really going out on a limb there. I have very little to add on music, uh, although I'd I'd grade it lower only because I think that Christmas music gives you a lot of opportunity to use bells, and I think that bells in horror movies are terrifying. Um, like I think there's so much you can do with 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 chimes and bells that like um, are, are very ominous. Um, ding. Dong, yeah. ding, da da da. Texas Chainsaw Massacre had a lot of that in it. Yeah, I thought that was a bit of a missed opportunity. And if I, if memory serves, I think the 2006 Black Christmas might have actually um, taken advantage of that. Yeah, you oh. make any Christmas song a Christmas song by just putting bells in it, right? Mm-hmm. So like, and bells to me sound very ominous, you know, or or deeply religious, you know. But it, there's something very, uh, it situates you at a moment. It it pulls you in very seriously. And I think the king of the bells in Christmas music, Phil Spector, was also a murderer. So it's perfect. Really. Didn't he kill his wife? I don't know who that is. <laughs> Phil Spector, like, famous record producer, did a really famous Christmas album, and I think that he was in the news for shooting his wife. Um, I could be wrong. I apologize. I'll do some research and make sure I keep this part in there, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's perfect. All right, that's going to wrap up the show. We made it 
68 minutes. Maybe we'll go another minute here, but uh, hopefully release this on a on Christmas. What do you? Uh, th- can I please add one thing? I should have oh, said yes. this in the hot takes. Oh, I'm sorry. This scene. Th- this this goes to this movie being done in the 70s. This scene where the 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 technician for the police department is trying to trace the call. <laughs> And he's running from rack to rack across all of this telecommunications equipment to basically just simply trace a call. It's an extremely stressful scene. It's multiple scenes where like they can't yeah. quite trace the call. And I thought that the use of um, the, the older technology uh, for you know the, t- the, the it actually added some drama and tension to that scene that I really appreciated and oh, you yeah. couldn't do it today like today in a movie you're tracing the call very easily the police are you know he's I don't calling even think you need the police for that right <laughs> like, it, at this, point. this is true uh, <laughs> and and you know the the build up to the calls coming from inside the house is this man running across this warehouse of telecommunications equipment oh, racks to 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 try and like put the pieces together to figure out where the call's coming from and i think it adds some like really good tension um that you just wouldn't have today because the equipment and and just yeah, to call right. out the uh the the male female dynamic in this they're like jess you're not keeping him on the phone long enough what the fuck is you your problem blaming <laughs> she's her. like what am i supposed to do <laughs> <laughs> he it's hangs just, up when he wants to hang up. Ca- John Saxon, man, he takes it from this movie into Nightmare on Elm Street yes. with Nancy, right? Just he was like, born to play a cop doubting a, a female. <laughs> <laughs> what else can he do, right? Unless he's like in one of those kung fu movies, like he is a he is a movie cop through and through. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, we're good now. Yeah, I think just to call out, like. You got to watch it. It's yes. a great it's a great fucking film. Like it's terrifying for for the 70s, it's terrifying for modern day. It does a good job at like creating a little bit of a murder mystery um on top of a good thriller horror movie and I think that um on rewatch every time I see it, I think it it still scares me. Um and I think that's what I like about it. So like if you want to be offended and scared and go back to a time that you're unfamiliar with, uh Black Christmas is the perfect choice. Yeah, it's not too bloody or gory. You know, it, it's it's actually something that's palatable, especially around this time that you actually can put on and get into your Christmas rotation. Hey, you know, you're, you know, Thanksgiving time, and you're just like, you know what? I just want to kick this off with a horror, you know, and uh, go that direction. And you still can. I feel the same way, and I think it's worth noting that like three people who really love horror films, us three that are talking right now, all like this movie so much that says something about it. And um, I thought I was going to be bored rewatching it, and I wasn't at all. Yeah, you like, texted me right away like that was good. <laughs> I really appreciated it. I just watched it two days ago. It's you know the week of Christmas now that we're taping this at. Fil- Taping? I don't know. Recording. Yeah, recording. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Are we videotaping right now, Eric? I got the real thrill in the other room. I just got to hit stop when we're done. Okay. <laughs> but you, you, uh, you know what I'm saying, though. Um, like, uh, it was a good rewatch, um, and uh, I wasn't bored at all. Yeah, I, th- I think the for a film it holds up because it's like. A film about nothing. Like, what are they? What's actually happening in the film? Like, you you get to learn nothing about this psychotic killer, and you get to l- learn a little bit about the lives of these sorority girls. But like, nothing is like ever finalized. No. So you're just like you're left wanting more, which I think is a is a good. It's like it shows restraint in a horror movie to like leave the viewer wanting more, but not give it to them. 
don't make nine sequels, just like leave it hanging, and you're always gonna wonder, like yeah, what what would have what would have happened if this? What happened to Jess? Did she die? You know, did they ever find Mrs. Mac? It's tantalizing at the end the way Jess is pa- sleeping in her bed or sedated. I don't know what she's she's lost her mind a little bit and she's in her bed still in the sorority house inexplicably. And the oh. cop the cop is outside watching over the house, but the killer's inside and nobody knows. And it's tantalizing that you don't know what's going to happen, and it just ends that way. I think the foreshadowing though is that every time somebody dies, the phone rings. So uh, the phone rings through the end after you hear Billy up in the attic. So yeah. to me, that's like the sign that he he's killed his, his next victim and the phone's ringing and we're off to the, the races. So I think Jess, I think Jess dies before the film ends because of the phone call. That makes sense. And we'll end it there with a, make sure there's ringing at the end of this podcast. <laughs> it's just going to ring throughout the end. Yes. All right, cool. All right. Thanks, everyone. Joey, thanks for coming. And thanks very for happy, having me. Very happy to have you here, even for Christmas. So this is great. All right. Good night, out. everyone. me, Bill.